Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode will be offering some ideas about how to keep your Call of Cthulhu games fresh. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what the devil is going on? Scott, I understand you were uh, running a game a while back. Yes, I ran a game for How We Roll, as I seem to be doing an awful lot these days. But, but an all-star cast. Yes, so I ran the Peru chapter, the new introduction to Masks of Nialothetep, for Owen and Joe from How We Roll. And we had special guests, uh, Veronica from Cthulhu and Friends, Keeper Murph from the Miskatonic University podcast, and uh, Seth Skorkowski of uh, you know Campus Cthulhu video fame. Yeah, um, how did it go? I'm looking forward to hearing it. I understand it went out on the... Chaosum's Twitch channel, right? Yes, yeah, we broadcast it live, but unfortunately there were some technical problems which meant that we didn't get to record the video. We have recorded all the audio, oh. and Joe is going to be putting all that out as episodes of How We Roll. We're still at this stage trying to get together for a follow-up, because <laughs> we, we got, in four or five hours of play, we got into, I think, the second scene. There was an awful lot of faffing around. Right. Entertaining faffing around, but dear God, did they faff. They didn't start role-playing, did they? They did. Oh. Yeah, I know. Yeah. No, that's game, just, just time-wasting. Yeah, I know. Still yeah, what's going on the there? GM. Yeah. <laughs> so that's coming out on audio, you say? Uh, yes, be, it will be but audio. Not, yeah. not Panavision. Uh, no, no, no. Unfortunately, you will have to imagine what our faces look like. We'll draw some stick figures or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah, okay. All right. And in the not-too-distant future, the three of us are going to be flying our way across the ghoul winds to the States. Huzzah! Necronomicon's coming! Yay! Yes. I've booked the airplane tickets, so we don't have to rely on any eldritch horrors to get us there. Oh, oh hang on, I thought we were flying Ryanair. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <clears throat> I, I, personally, I'd rather take my chances with the Bayaki, but... But, yeah. we've, I found tickets that fly us via Cork directly to Providence. Wow. Which is pretty cool. So we, we land in Providence Airport, which I imagine is some tiny airport just taking in, like, <laughs> biplanes and stuff. But it is taking an international flight, so it's probably quite a large airport, I guess. I guess we'll find out. Yeah. And as well as booking flights for Necronomicon, I also booked myself a ticket for Gen Con. Oh, you're so, back uh, and forth across the Atlantic, then. Yeah. And now on to today's main topic, keeping Cthulhu fresh. When I was preparing for this, I worked out that between the three of us, we've now been playing Call of Cthulhu for over 90 years. But uh, with all that Cthulhu under our belts, well, where Wilbur Waitley pretended they were belts at least, how the hell do we keep it all interesting? We've recorded 153 episodes now of, of this podcast. We've written a bunch of stuff for Call of Cthulhu. We've played all these games, Paul and I, since the early 80s. How the hell do we keep call of cthulhu fresh for us well maybe we should start off by asking do we feel we're able to do that because we're kind of making an assumption there yeah the, the mythos is big enough that there's certainly plenty of stuff to do it take a long time to exhaust everything out there given that it is such a game where that you can put so many different spins on it even if in terms of setting in terms of content in terms of adversary yeah there's i probably wouldn't say countless variations but there's a hell of a lot of them hmm 
So we're going to break this down broadly into two categories. Uh, we're going to look at advice for keepers first and address how they can keep the game fresh. And then we're going to look at it from the player's perspective and you know, consider things that the player can do to keep the game fresh for themselves. The first thing that we've got down on our list here is something that it took me far too long to come to terms with myself, which is not always being the GM. For a long time, I have been sort of the default GM for groups that I've played with. I've run countless games at conventions. I've run a lot of games online. I am usually the GM. In fact, I would say that I've never seen you at a convention play a game. It, it has happened a few times, but not often. It used to. Uh, yeah. When we used to go to conventions to start with, you used to be a player. Yes. So, yeah, I think definitely being a player in other people's games is good because it, it allows you to experience other GMing styles. So I play games with Mike Mason. As a player, I've played with him. But also, you know, having him as keeper, that's a different thing again because mm. he got a good keeping style that he brings to the table. You know, when you put somebody in the GM's chair, the keeper's chair, you really see what their keeper style is and that's probably different to yours and there's another aspect to this as well which is something that um, yeah i see people talking about online fairly often and and certainly i've experienced a few times it fundamentally isn't that different i think an experienced gma game than playing one not as much as some people make out but at the same time it does put more pressure on you in terms of preparation time the fact that you're quite often the default social organizer of the group and people expect you to act as arbiter and coordinator for everything yeah if it's a weekly game i find it soon comes around again and i haven't done it and then it feels onerous and taking a break from that and playing a game, you know, letting someone else do that, it not only gives you a break from all that pressure if you've been feeling pressured by all that, but, you know, as you said, it gives you a sort of change of perspective and a similar enough but at the same time different experience. And certainly the types of scenarios you run are going to be a factor. So if you tend to run or publish material and look at doing some of your own stuff or vice versa. That's a big one for me again, in that over the years, it's been very, very rare for me to run anything that I haven't written myself. Yeah, I find on the few occasions I run stuff that's written by other people. It does an awful lot for me because, I mean, it exposes me to ideas that I wouldn't necessarily have had myself. It uses different parts of my brains and different experiences as a GM in that as I run my own stuff, I tend to be very improvisational, quite chaotic in my preparation methods. But running stuff that other people have written is a much more organised process for me. And it certainly taxes me in different ways. It challenges me in different ways. It also gives you exposure to something that you think, oh, that's a good little technique I haven't used mm. before or haven't thought of. Why can't I do that in my own stuff with my own little spin on it? Yeah, it just gives you access to what other tools other people use. I know I've said this time and again, but the experience of, first of all, reading and then running Greg Stolze's Jailbreak scenario from the Unknown Army's One-Shots collection was one of the most transformative experiences I've had as a GM. Mm. That I saw how that was presented, I saw the way he structured that scenario, and the way that it moves in radically different directions during play, but at the same time, you know, it's a very well-structured and written scenario. Yeah, it really changed the way I looked at pretty well every role-playing scenario since then. Yeah, it's not so much of your traditional story. It's an environment with enough elements in there where shit's going to go down at some point. It's just how it goes down. Mm. And you can definitely transfer a scenario like that to Call of Cthulhu, I think. Oh, absolutely, yes. And on the flip side, I mean, like you said, you know, if you're used to running pre-written stuff, even if you're not 
writing your own material from scratch. If you're running pre-written material, just hacking it around and making it your own and bringing your own personal elements to it, you know, using a scenario as, as raw material can be very challenging. Particularly with one of the things that I do with Call of Cthulhu is that I'll look through the either the Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia or the Encyclopedia Cthuliana, depending on which edition uh, you want to refer to it as, or the Malus Monstorum. Flick through the pages and go, well, I haven't used that one yet. Yeah, just use different monsters, different gods, different parts of canon that you haven't used before. Something that is completely new to you. Maybe it with something that you haven't run or something you haven't seen appear in a scenario you've played. Yeah, I remember, I think it was Kerry Birch talking about this a while back, where he said that sometimes if he was stuck for an idea for a scenario, he'd pull one of the Chaosium fiction collections off the shelf and just flick through it and and look at some of the different approaches that writers had taken in the stories there and, and use that as inspiration for what he was going to do next. Mm. I mean, you could extend that, I guess, to horror films or TV shows. But, I mean, have you got any examples of that, Matt, where you've gone hunting for perhaps hidden corners of the mythos? Yeah, there's one particular time I can think of that uses a fairly obscure deity. I can't even think where they've appeared in any other published examples, at least in terms of scenario. I mean, it's, the entry's in Malus Monstorum for Trenembra, which is the Chaosium explanation for the entity that Eric Zahn is trying to keep back from his window, this um, animate sound that eventually will whisk him off and take him to who knows where, or rather the Court of Azathoth, if you read the uh, Malus Monstorum entry, thinking that was an entity that, again, was unusual. I'd only really read about in the fiction, hadn't seen appeared in another gaming supplement, no scenario, no campaign. I thought, well, this is the kind of thing that interests me. I used to play music for a very long time. So, yeah, why not? And then started digging around and formulating a scenario around that. And I think similarly, there's nothing wrong with just making stuff up. It's easy sometimes, I think, to forget when you're looking at games like Call of Cthulhu, which have got this rich background material and established canon taken from fiction and so on, that all of these things are just things that people made up at some point because they fitted a story idea that they had or evoked a particular atmosphere. And by all means, don't feel constrained by what's in print. It gets added to because people make stuff up. You can do that. And in terms of changing the game and keeping it fresh another thing you can do because maybe like using a different monster or whatever you're still going to play the same game it's just a different monster but you can change the tone of your game perhaps so you can make it lighter and more humorous or darker and more gritty and horrific by changing the tone perhaps by changing the location you run the the game in maybe you know you go down the pub or cafe with your friends and play the game or you play it just in candlelight or something like that you really change the the atmosphere of the game and, and keep it fresh in that way paul i mean do you find it spectacularly different the experience you get say playing at a convention playing at home playing at a club well for me personally i think playing at a convention would keep the gaming fresh and the reason for that, I would say, is because at a convention, I end up playing with a bunch of people I don't know, either as a player or as a keeper. And there's a kind of a familiarity you have with your regular players. There's a kind of a routine, perhaps, that you sort of fit into. We all know how we play, so we end up playing like it again. But when you're at a convention with a bunch of people you don't know, that doesn't exist. And also, you want to bring your best game as keeper. So I think... 
that makes you sort of try to attempt to showcase you know your best side that really brings a, a good experience how about you matt yeah, I can certainly see how it would be outside of my comfort zone. The one thing, again, I don't like about running at conventions is the normal convention atmosphere where everyone has a table in a very large room. I've had the experience where I've had to shout and very vocally have a sore voice at the end of a single slot to be heard by someone at the other end of the table, and I vowed never to do that again. That's why whenever I run games at conventions, it's always in a lodge or in a private room elsewhere away from the main gaming environment, which I know is somewhat counterproductive to the rest of the convention, but it's just the way I prefer to run games. But no, I I don't think it's entirely counted to the convention experience. You know, as Paul said, you're playing with people you might not necessarily know. And this is one of the things I really like about playing games online as well, because it adds a, a further thing to the convention experience, which is that you can play a game simultaneously with people from all around the world. I do this fairly regularly. The gaming groups I play with, you know, I'm currently playing with people from the US, Sweden, all over the UK. These are people who, you know, in a lot of cases I've never even met in person. But we game together online and, you know, have a great time together. And this just wouldn't happen otherwise. Hmm. But, Paul, I mean, I, I know you're not a big fan of online gaming. No, I just don't. I just find it really hard to engage with. I've can, done it can, can a number you, of times. Can you... Put your finger on why you find it disengaging. I can try. I'm not sure I can put my finger on it. There's that thing of actually being there in person and being a part of that. But I feel when I'm doing it through the computer screen, there's just a distance and it's easy to become disconnected with that. You know, I've experienced that a few times and it just feels a bit lackluster to me. I just don't feel the, the intensity of the experience. That's one thing that's just occurred to me. You've only ever played in online games, is that right? Have you ever run a game online? Maybe not. I don't know if that would perhaps change your experience there, because if you're the GM, it's a lot harder to disengage because yeah. you know, you're pretty much the focus of attention all the time. I, I wonder whether that would be a different experience for you there. So I've been the reverse. I've only ever run online games. I've never played an online game. Hmm. But no, I get exactly where you're coming from. It's a very different feeling because I'm very conscious of the fact I'm sitting in a room on my own talking to a screen and occasionally noise comes out of the laptop speakers. It is very different to running a game in person and I vastly prefer running in person. I have become quite a fan of online play. and And how much do you play, Scott, and how much do you run? I mostly run, but I do play. I mean, for example, played in... Mike Mason ran a playtest of The Curse of Seven, this the upcoming Cthulhu by Gaslight campaign. Uh, Lynn Hardy ran The Children of Fear, which is the Call of mm. Cthulhu campaign she's writing. I played in both of those. Tor Nielsen has run some really cool online one-shots that I've played in. Tom Pleasant has. I've, yeah, I've a done bit. a fair amount. Yeah, yeah. But going back to the idea, then, of tone... Do you have a particular preference as far as tone is concerned? I mean, you, 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 you're saying you tend to prefer more serious games? I think I, I prefer games that change in tones. I don't think I can be serious for four hours or however long that the slot is, but for, to vary that tone and sometimes be quiet and serious and grim and sometimes everybody's laughing. A good variation, I guess. But do you ever try to particularly pitch a tone of game so let's say you're used to playing at the club where perhaps it is more light-hearted approach and i'm just saying that for argument's sake yeah you come to play a game at home do you find yourself in terms of wanting to keep the experience fresh thinking right okay i've had enough of that style of play let's try doing something particularly grim or something more serious yeah i think 
I, I would try and do that in the terms that I present the game. So by the way you speak as Keeper, usually in a role of an NPC, rather than just your normal kind of keepering voice to alter that to make people sort of sit up and take notes mm. and think, oh, this is different. And sometimes that's using what might be called theatrical effects like turning the lights out or dimming the lights or things to just to grab people's attention. How about you, Matt? I mean, do you deliberately vary the tone of your games or do you tend to find that you hit the same kind of emotional beats in most of them? I try to make my games fairly different. I mean, I try to run them all as fairly serious rather than deliberately or intentionally lighthearted. Sometimes it gets that way, but it's not the intention from the outset. But I do try to vary the themes. I don't like to have the same thing turn up in multiple games, whether it be a creature or indeed just the content or tone. One example, I don't want to have two games around abortion, for example. I'll do it as one single game instance and then I'll move on to another theme. It might be homelessness in the next one. It might be organised crime in the next after that. I try to vary it rather than go back and fall on the same things. And in terms of you know, whether or not a game is particularly action-packed or more down-to-earth, obviously we've written for both Call of Cthulhu and Pop Cthulhu. Do you find that switching between the two works as a palate cleanser that, you know, after playing a lot of standard Call of Cthulhu, that, say, playing Pulp Cthulhu suddenly shakes things up for you, or vice versa? It can do. I think it's whether you like what you're using as the palate cleanser. If I was deliberately going to a combat-heavy game just because I'd run so much of more serious games beforehand, that wouldn't really do much for me because I find the exercise of running lots of combat very tedious and that's not going to really instill me with anything that makes me want to get up and run more games. Put the combat to one side. I mean, pulp is a very different style mm. of play. Mm. So would you go to pulp as a, an alternative? Yeah, potentially, minus the combat. <laughs> <laughs> but you've run a fair bit of Pulp Cthulhu. I mean, you know, is Pulp Cthulhu for you just defined by the combat, or is there something different about the tone of that? It's very much the tone. It's that you are actively taking on mythos forces. But I think Martin Harris, a friend of ours, that pinned it down as a good way to define the differences between them. In one that you're a victim and one you're a hero. And that is a very big tonal shift. Mm. I can see the benefits of both. I enjoy running both. Just that they are two very different games, yeah. So instead of people playing investigators, they should play victims. They are, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you've played Dead of Night, haven't you? On the the character sheet, it actually says victim name. Yes. But you're talking about your, your, your dislike of combat there. In terms of the elements that you bring into games, I mean, do you ever change those up in order to provide a different experience for yourself? For example, having run a fair bit of Cthulhu Dark, Cthulhu Dark takes combat off the table completely. It's not there as a solution to the problems. It's, it's on the table, but it's not a solution, is yes. what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> that then places an interesting restriction on the kind of game you can run or play. Yes, as you say, I mean, you can have a fight in that. It's just going to be a fairly short and terminal thing. Mm-hmm. So that leads to a very different experience of play than, say, playing Call of Cthulhu, particularly Pop Cthulhu. But Call of Cthulhu, investigators are usually fairly quick to bring out Tommy guns and dynamite and you know sort out problems that way do you ever place restrictions like no combat or no mythos elements or other things just to make a, a scenario or a session feel different to yourself no neither have i <laughs> really okay no that would hold no interest to me at all i don't know that kind of constraint or contrivance doesn't really appeal to me i don't know all right I don't yeah know why i'd do that no, I, I've always liked the idea that creativity is fostered by constraint. 
that, you know, if you yeah, put constraints that, but... on yourself, then it forces you to behave or it forces you to create in different ways. Hmm. I haven't thought about doing it before, but I can see the appeal of it. If anything, I get a similar kind of thing from changing up rule systems. Mm. As we've explored in the, the Realism episode where we're talking about game mechanics, there are certain mechanics that allow you to do some things in some ways that are very different or non-existent in other games. And running those type of games, because of the options you've got, it does affect the storyline, it does affect the outcome, it does affect the potential ways that the players or even the GM can react in the course of the scenario. They have to be able to adapt and think of something on the fly, depending on what the dice result is. But if there is a lot more narrative impact rather than just a mechanical effect. So that's the kind of change out I would get from that, rather than thinking, right, I'm going to blank out NPCs, no NPCs at all in this scenario, or no combat, because I'd I live for those days where there'll be no <laughs> combat again. You're in combat, yeah. Matt. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, I mean, you must have had the experience at some stages where playing or GMing a different game has perhaps not fundamentally changed the way you look at Call of Cthulhu, but has at least given you new insights into the way things might work. Well, totally. In terms of how role-playing games might work or things you might do in a game, playing other games is a big element of that. Can you think of any specific examples then, Paul, of games you've played or game sessions you've had with other game systems where you've seen some of that stuff, taken it back to Call of Cthulhu, and it's shaken up the way you play the game? Yeah, definitely. Different game mechanics and different... Yeah, no, actually, I was going to say different settings, but it's probably different game mechanics for me. Um, In terms of what the players can do and the way the rules handle those things. So I'm mostly thinking about games like Dogs in the Vineyard, Apocalypse World and its many spin-offs that present a different way of resolving incidents that occur in the game and perhaps present the players with a different level of agency of what they can do. And a number of games do that. I mean, most games do it in the same old fashion, but some games handle it differently in a way that I enjoy and some games don't. Can you think of any specific ways in which your experience of playing those games has modified the way that you approach Call of Cthulhu? Yeah, so I think the escalation mechanic in Dogs in the Vineyard, where you could switch up from doing something and there was a threat level to your character that was just verbal, and then you could switch it up to physical, and then you could switch it up to gunfire. And it was your choice as player to escalate that. So that fed into the whole pushing the role mechanic. It's not the same thing, but it's that thing of, okay, well, I'm going to escalate the situation now through my choice as player. So I'd say that is a definite place where it was an influence. How about you, Matt? I think the big one for me mainly comes down to the relationships between different characters, and that comes from a combination of Hot War, Cold City... And to a littler extent, because it's a more recent game, Cult Divinity Lost, that they all place a fairly big emphasis on the relationships you have between characters and how they're viewed, also to some extent how they view you as a really weird concept to get your head round initially. But it's helped me frame dynamics in games where I've used pre-gens, particularly at conventions, where this mainly happens. Although some of the scenarios that we've had that have been published that use pre-gen scenarios in there as well. 
and it gives a depth just beyond saying, right, this is you, you were like this as a kid, you got this academic qualification, you've done this job, you've done that job, here's a little bit about what you do now, blah, blah, blah. It really fleshes you out in the context of the scenario to know exactly what do you think of the person sat next to you and then potentially how that can evolve during the course of play, depending mm. on how they act, depending on their relationship with you. Certainly for me, there were a great many games I played in the 2000s. The whole explosion of indie games that came out of The Forge. So things like The Mountain Witch, Primetime Adventures, Dogs in the Vineyard, Sorcerer, that fundamentally challenged a lot of the techniques and assumptions that I'd built up over the years as a GM and forced me to become better at doing things like framing scenes and to think of things in terms of scenes that if I'm establishing a location or a set of events or whatever, the way I present those and describe those to the players. It forced me to upcut my game in terms of narrative because I was improvising a lot more and so I'd suddenly have to create an NPC or a location or a situation on the fly and try to make it real to the players. And so that forced me to develop that part of my imagination and to become better at presenting that information. And I think without the experience of playing those games, the type of Call of Cthulhu I run today would be very, very different. It would probably be a lot more flat. One fairly extreme thing you can do is take a break from gaming. If you feel like you're stuck in a rut and, well, you kind of know if you're getting a bit bored with it, if it's not really working for you, if you're not getting excited about it then it's perfectly fine to sit out for a while. Chances are a few weeks go by, a few months go by, and then somebody says, oh, do you want to play in a game? And you're like excited about it again. So certainly I've done that. I've had numerous periods when I haven't gone to the Milton Keynes role-playing game club or numerous periods where... Actually, when I look back at my life, there haven't been that longer periods any more than like maybe about a year or more during which, you know, I've not played a game at all. So it's been fairly consistent you know for the last coming up four years i mean for me i I took a 10-year break from gaming between the early 90s and early 2000s a lot of that wasn't gaming burnout that was simply moving to a different place and not knowing any gamers here and just falling out of the habit of gaming but since then there have been times where it's not even just that it's felt flat or uninteresting but maybe because I've taken on too many games at once or, you know, there have been other frustrations going on in my life where gaming has suddenly felt like an imposition or stressful at times, particularly if I've been GMing a lot and it's sort of, oh, God, yeah, I've got to run this game again this week and, you know, I'm sure half the players are going to cancel at the last minute and I'm not really going to enjoy it if that happens. And, you know, it gets to that stage and sometimes I'll take three or four months off from gaming come back to it refreshed and you know enjoy it all the more for it i've not really ever had a break <laughs> so we spent quite a while talking about what keepers can do because i think the onus is mostly on keepers players are just long for the ride aren't they what can they do <laughs> well in my games nothing well <laughs> yeah. apart from scream and die well as yeah follow your orders yes yeah yeah D- dance like the puppets they are yeah so what yeah. can players do to keep it fresh well, I guess the most obvious one is run a game for a change. Then they're not a player. Yeah, but but I, I, <laughs> but I've no, seen I this. I I, I've seen this a number of times that people sort of think of themselves very much in the player role, and it doesn't even occur to them to run a game. Or more than that, they perhaps feel intimidated. They feel it's going to be too difficult, so they just resign themselves to the player role and never actually run a game. 
Which is absolutely fine, because, you know, in most games, the players outnumber the GM greatly. So as a balance, that works. But I think the important thing is, if you run a game, you get a, a whole new appreciation for what the GM does for a start. But also, I think from a role-playing point of view, just, for example, the experience of having to narrate stuff, having to play lots of different NPCs, shakes up your abilities and hones your abilities as a player, because you're stretching yourself. You know, I'm just suddenly thinking this is almost just like do the reverse of everything we've listed for GMs. <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> and that sort of leads on to the whole idea of playing different types of characters. I've known a great many players over the years who seem to default to the same general stereotypes in characters or the same basic template. Is this something that you two find yourself doing? I mean, I oh. know, for example, Matt, you will always play a sort of bookish antiquarian type who pokes around into secrets man was not meant to know and then sets everything on fire bookish antiquarian arsonist yep <laughs> that's me <laughs> do, do, do you ever feel like you're in a rut playing the same kind of character or are you happy doing that or do you ever feel this is a new game this is a new campaign i want to play someone really different just to see what it's like yes and no yes i enjoy it it's you can get up to much hilarity and fun with that type of character and go crazy learning magic and blow the scenario apart <laughs> Yes, um, <laughs> literally. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Dynamite's your best friend. Um, but sometimes I do, I'm tempted to play other types of characters, and I have played other types. It's not just they go crazy and whip out the can of kerosene. Admittedly, the one type of character, if by some fluke I ever get a chance to play a long-term game for a change, I want to do something based on the stories that you've put forward of your percussive investigator, because I think that's <laughs> bloody hilarious. <laughs> Just have a D6 damage bonus and wait till they give you the answers. <laughs> yes, yeah. Punch, punch them until the clues fall out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Clue pinata. <laughs> but don't you find sometimes if you play a radically different character, suddenly you realise, oh, this is why I don't usually play that kind of character because I don't really know how to do this. I'm hell, not really comfortable. Hell yes. No, yeah. I have, I've very much been there. Um, particularly when I've done vampire games, either vampire LARPs or tabletop. Right. Um, I've thought, yeah, actually, I haven't tried this clan before. I'll try this one. And then after a couple of sessions, hell no! That's why I realised I've never played them before. They yeah. suck! But, yeah. but do, you, do you ever find yourself surprising yourself in those respects, where you play a character that's outside your comfort zone and perhaps you're not quite certain how to approach it, and then as you get into playing it, you suddenly realise that, oh, yes, I can do this, and it's you know perhaps exercising parts of my creativity that wouldn't have been exercised otherwise? Yeah, I think so. I think pre-gens are a particularly good thing for that. So I've been given pre-gens to a game and it's like you read it and hopefully it's fairly brief and if it plays on a kind of archetype that you can latch into fairly readily, then, you know, oh, I can see this is like that person. Okay, well, I can kind of buy into that. And it's not what I'd usually play. So I can remember in one Call of Cthulhu game, I had this character who was a lot like, and this is probably going to be a reference that a lot of people don't get, but Fred Dibner, the steeple oh. jack from the, mm. the TV show, the sort of documentary in the 1980s, and he used to climb up steeples and Does lots chimneys of campanology. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, well, I think so. Did he do campanology? I thought, I thought, it, was, I thought it was bell Did ringing he? that he'd done at some point. Or oh, maybe. He was like, yeah, he was like blowing up towers and knocking things down. And yeah, anyway. So, so I mean, think about the character sheet. Did he have 50% in campanology? Well, I don't recall that. <laughs> yeah, this is a long time ago. But I, I just kind of bought into that as a, as a kind of a, if you can call that the Fred Dipner archetype. Um, <laughs> then, uh, then I just kind of bought into that. And it wasn't somebody I'd usually play, but it just kind of felt like, and that was, 
I mean, maybe the other people wouldn't know that's who I'd got in my head. But for me, that was something I could latch into. So I think if you're going to be something different to what I think I normally play, it's quite good for me to have almost like somebody to impersonate, you know, usually somebody from fiction or whatever. But that's when it can be difficult because I can latch on to or I'll play this character from this film that I've seen and try and be like that. And then realise that actually I can't really do that. Yeah, I mean that's that's, that's a really interesting point because you know thinking about pregens and characters taken from fiction, I, I can think of a few convention games I've played where you know I've suddenly been given characters from the canon of TV series or films or books or even real life personalities. I've suddenly realised that I find that absolutely paralysing because there's a certain set of expectations about how that character will behave that I might not feel I'm familiar enough with the character or the setting to pull off. I find that more off-putting than anything else. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about playing a specific character. Yes. I'm just talking yeah. about having that character in my head and sort of using that as a springboard. But, oh, yeah, yeah. No, but I'm, I'm, yeah. I was building on that just to think yeah. that there are some times where that's really worked against me, where that set of expectations... Yeah, I would never sign up for something like that where you're playing a character from a TV show or something like that. No, I, would, I can't think that I would anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I've seen this happen a number of times at conventions in the UK where people have run Call of Cthulhu games inspired by Dad's Army. Yeah, I was thinking that, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for, for anyone who's not from the UK who might not have encountered it, Dad's Army is a sitcom from the 1970s which was inspired by the British Home Guard, who were this volunteer force in the Second World War, of people who were not fit for frontline service, but operated as a Home Guard, as, as this military force to protect our own shores. Mm. And they were known colloquially as Dad's Army because they were, on the whole, a bit older than your average. Yeah, I think man. my grandfather yeah. was one in the Second World War. Yeah. yeah. And they're usually doomed. They're all doomed. <laughs> I mean, it's a great show. But it was. I don't really want to play Pike or Captain Mannering or something like that. I just, yeah. It'd be funny for a few minutes, but then you kind of end up using the same old catchphrases for yeah. humour or whatever. And I don't know. Just like be, the show. Well, yes, but, <laughs> but me doing it, I don't know how funny that would be. I don't but, I mean, there's a further aspect to it where those characters are scripted, where someone's had time to sit down mm. and think about what their dialogue fits in with what's going on and to work out how their character quirks might fit with the larger plot and, and make sure all the pieces fall into play, which in a more improvisational setting of, of actually playing a game is really fucking hard work. I mean, I think some people would love it. Yeah. And oh, some yeah. people would be great at it. Yeah. yeah it'd, be, it'd probably be hilarious sitting on that game, but it takes a particular set of skills, I think, which I'm not sure I have. Can you think of any examples, going on a more positive note, Matt, of times that you've been given a pre-gen or a type of character that you might not normally play and suddenly found that it's made you be creative in an exciting way? Any time I've played in one of your games. Because <laughs> seriously, you have. Uh, when I look at the list of either occupations or the brief overviews of any of the characters that you will lay out in the game, I'd go, I'd never pick a fucking one of them <laughs> if I was playing it normally. <laughs> so yeah, honestly, playing in one of your games, you, you create characters that I would never normally play. Okay, I'll, hmm. I'll, I'll I'll try to take that as a compliment. No, it is because it, it, again, it puts you in it puts me in an environment. I've got yeah. I have no fucking idea. <laughs> but I mean, do, do you find that you tend to enjoy that challenge? Does it keep the game fresh for you? It or, certainly makes it yeah. different, and it does make it a challenge. Sometimes it works, and sometimes I think yeah, I really don't like these characters at all. They can all die. <laughs> Usually, well, that's what happens to them. So. I was about to say, it's Call of Cthulhu. They will. <laughs> now, kind of relevant to this topic, a tweet from Adrian Kelly saying, 
Got a bag full of dice and I'm off to play RPGs with complete strangers in a public place for the first time. Nervous slash excited. So good for him. I mean, that's just the sort of thing that we would encourage in terms of keeping the game fresh. I'd be interested to hear how Adrian got on with that. Hopefully that going out, I mean, I've done it innumerable times over the years of going somewhere and meeting a bunch of people not necessarily at conventions this could be people that we've contacted through other means particularly before the Milton Keynes role-playing games club when I was just looking for people to game with yeah and then turning up and, and playing a game with them and you know their, their style of play would be different to mine I remember oh gosh must be 15 years ago or so getting on for that I'd never been to a role-playing convention where I was going to play a game. I'd been to conventions where there was some role-playing going on, but I was there for other things. And you, Paul, you taught me into going along to Continuum, the first ever Continuum with you. Right. And I was bricking it ahead of time because... And you weren't even running. No, no, I wasn't. But I know this might be difficult to believe, but I'm actually quite a shy, retiring person by nature. And the idea of suddenly being there surrounded by hundreds of people I didn't know in an environment that I didn't know what to expect from and playing games that I might not have played before, I was really intimidated by that. It was a transformative experience. It sort of opened up whole new vistas of gaming to me. That experience of going to conventions after that really changed the way I approached games. But yeah, I was terrified. Mm. I don't think I really experienced that. I think the closest I've come was probably Gen Con, where it was the last time I went. Far too many people there. It became just an overwhelmingly oppressive environment. But did that make you feel anxious or, or worried? or just... it, it really made me feel uncomfortable. Just the, just okay. the sheer mass of crowds, though? I mean... Yeah. I mean, I don't like generally being around many people as it is. So an environment like that was, if anything, pretty damn hostile. Yeah, well, I could see if you don't like crowds, then Gen Con is not the place <laughs> no. to be. Um, no, UK yeah. conventions are a bit better for that. Yeah. I'm building on some of the stuff that we, we were talking about with the GM side of things and tying that in with playing different types of characters. Let me talk about my own experience here and see whether this jibes with either of you. you know, I mentioned that I've been playing in a few long-term campaigns with, with Mike Mason and Lynn Hardy. I went out of my way to play characters not only that were perhaps different to the types of characters I'd normally play, but imposed certain limitations on them to try to cut off avenues of play that I might fall back on as a crutch. So, for example, very deliberately created a couple of characters that had no combat skills whatsoever, that were absolutely useless in a fight and were cowards. So that I'd be forced to play in a very different way than I I ordinarily do. I deliberately created a character who was a sceptic, so that instead of embracing all the weirdness as it comes up and trying to play with it Mm. as I normally do, I'd be trying to dismiss it or try to avoid it. And I found both of those quite difficult things to do, but at the same time, I really enjoyed it because they were so thoroughly different than my other gaming experiences. Do you ever put limitations like that or deliberately tailor characters to take you outside your normal modes of play? Yeah, this goes back to the example I'm thinking of with Vampire, where I've tried to build characters that weren't investigators, didn't have particular powers, or didn't get involved in X, Y, or Z type of plot, and I fucking hated it. Okay. It's, again, I play to strengths. If I play in a game, I like to enjoy it. And by taking away the stuff that I deliberately enjoyed in a game, it made it a very unfun experience. So you've not found that there are things that you weren't expecting to enjoy that you suddenly did? Not in my experience so far, no. How about you, Paul? I remember I created a pacifist character in the first time that I played Master of the Tep. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> of, of all the campaigns to do that in. <laughs> 
he survived till uh, Egypt, and then we stopped playing, which was a shame. But yeah, I think sometimes my characters are skeptic, or sometimes they're a believe in the mythos, or, or different things like that. Yeah, I, I guess it adds a slightly different aspect to the playing experience. Yeah, it's a bit like in D and D. If you chose to play a, you know, a wizard as opposed to a fighter, it gives you a different experience. Whereas in Call of Cthulhu, you're, you're an investigator. There is only one class, if you like. So you can change that up by putting in different skills or different kind of outlooks on the world. And I suppose the biggest challenge to the way we normally play Call of Cthulhu, the biggest restriction that we could place on ourselves that would shake up our gaming experiences totally is just refusing to set anything on fire. Not going to happen. <laughs> That's a stretch too far. Yeah, yeah, that's just completely unrealistic. It's breaking the game. You got a demolition skill on the sheet, I'm damn well gonna use it. <laughs> do we ever make your roll though where you set things on fire? Sometimes people do, oh, yeah. Really? I do sometimes ask for a luck roll. Yeah. The yeah matches, nice the matches might be damp. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> just to put a capstone on this portion of the discussion. We've all stated preferences here, and we talked a little bit about playing outside our comfort zone. Do we think, though, in general terms, that either as a player or as a GM, that it's important to us to move outside our comfort zone like that, to perhaps run kinds of games or play kinds of characters that we wouldn't ordinarily do? I think this is kind of a double-edged question. Looking at it as a GM, yes, I can very much agree. There is a definite emphasis and a definite advantage for mixing up your style of play by learning to do things differently, by learning to do things in more ways, because you will only grow and improve as a GM as a result of that. As a player, I'm honestly a bit more of a traditionist. I like being in my groove. I like playing what I play. And on the times where I've tried to be different on that, I've just not enjoyed it. So I stick with what I find enjoyable. You, you don't ever get bored with approaching things in the same way? No, not really. Oh, well, good for no. you. Oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. That, that, what, don't think this is condemnation. It's just something I find interesting. I think the thing is, if you're getting bored with it and you're not really enjoying it, then that's one option you can explore is doing it differently. But if you're perfectly happy, like Matt just attested to, stick with it. There's no reason to change for change's sake. It's just there for fun. I guess my experience is a bit different. I, I have quite a low threshold of boredom, and I, I don't know. There's something instinctive in me that doesn't like doing the same things over and over again or doing things in the same way. Like everyone, I do have my habits, and there are things I go back to. But there's always a part of my head that's telling me that I want to try something different. Hmm. Unless I listen to that, I get frustrated. I'm now sat with Mike Mason, line editor of Call of Cthulhu, in his library. How are you doing, Mike? I'm very well, Paul. Yeah, how are you? Well, I'm very well. I thought I'd come to the, the font of wisdom wow. to, uh, to ask you. <laughs> now, you started in with Call of Cthulhu, what, in the early 80s? Yeah, yeah. It was probably maybe a year, maybe two years after the game actually first came out. So around, yeah, early 80s. Yeah. Dim and distant past. Yeah. And yeah, it's been pretty... I guess, constant since then, really. So certainly for, what, 30-odd years or so. Yeah, so So the theme of this show is about keeping Call of Cthulhu fresh as a game and keeping your interest in it. So I guess the first question is, do you still feel that enthusiasm for the game? I mean, obviously, you know, you're in the position that you're getting paid. This is your job as line editor. But I know you, and I know that you still have that enthusiasm for it. And where do you think that comes from? I think it comes from 
where it was at the beginning. It was um, my enjoyment of the game was markably different from uh, my enjoyment of playing other kind of games, you know, whether they be board games or other role-playing games. I mean, you know, I enjoy playing all kinds of role-playing games, but Call of Cthulhu particularly for me touched the buttons of my interests. I'd always been interested in kind of mystery and horror, love horror films, always been reading horror fiction, uh, that kind of thing. So it, it naturally kind of dovetailed with me with those. And I think also because it played as a different game to the majority of role-playing games out there, well, all the role-playing games at the time, certainly when it was released, uh, in that you were playing regular people in extraordinary circumstances, really kind of, as I say, kind of hit hit my interest. And um, that's never changed. I, I, I still hold, I've said this many times before, but I still find the inbuilt heroism of a Call of Cthulhu character that much more engaging, appealing and interesting than someone who is, quote marks, a fantasy hero who is already superhuman, has got magic spells and swords and magical items, you know, the kind of the classic concept of the hero. I always find the kind of the, the kind of the regular Joe kind of normal person has got none of that special abilities who engages in something heroic as, as being more more heroic and more interesting because they're much more like real people they're much more like real characters that you'd find in um in, in kind of the fiction that i like to read you know i like i like reading fiction that's uh, about kind of regular things and you get to kind of explore that character you know in, in sort of 360 degrees kind of thing so i get that it's about regular player characters against you know some kind of adversarial mystery but I guess that's the side of it that we need to keep fresh because you must have seen a lot of scenarios. And do you start to see scenarios and sort of think, oh, this feels a bit like, you know, the other one that we played? Yeah, do you not feel that that sometimes gets a bit tired? Yeah, certainly over the years, I've seen scenarios that are very similar to, to other scenarios. And, you know, you can, you can kind of boil things down if you really want to into kind of like there's a haunted house. There's, you know, something strange is going on in the house you're exploring. You know, that goes right back to the, you know, the haunting scenario. But there's been many other scenarios that have a feature around a house and there's something going on in it. And then you've got the kind of the king in yellow. Uh, Someone is putting on the play and guess what? Oh, the king in yellow is going to be released at the end of it. You know, they're, they're all very much of a muchness but you know even still within those kind of tight confines there there can be quite a lot of variety um and i guess what keeps it fresh for me is when you find somebody who's taken the kind of a, a common trope or something that we know where you have some certain expectations and then just twists it slightly or turns it on its head and actually that's become something else and it kind of oh that's interesting i never thought about doing it that way or, or engaging it in play in that way and it, it becomes you know a completely different thing it may, starts off Play, you know, playing with your preconceptions, which I find is interesting. And a lot of really good Call of Cthulhu scenarios tend to do that. You know, they, you kind of go into it thinking, oh, I know I know exactly where this is heading. And the ones for me that work really well are the ones I enjoy most in terms of at the gaming table uh, are the ones that kind of play with that convention and twist it slightly. So, you know, I'm less fired up by ones that are just a complete rerun through of The Haunting with a mm. different monster, but it's the same scenario. Um, and likewise... I, you know, I often kind of see a, a scenario come in that's actually, well, actually all you've done is actually just copy the script of this quite famous horror film, like, say, This Is The Thing, you know. So it's and, kind of reskinned. And it's just reskinned the thing without any kind of other tweaks or changes to kind of just give it a bit more originality or a different take on it. So those things, those things are, are less fresh to me 
But the other thing I should also say is that, you know, my position is that we're talking about this from a perspective of playing the game for like 30 plus years. In my position, I've got to acknowledge that, yeah, there is a, there is a bunch of players out there similar to us who've been playing a long time and, you know, mm. could be somewhat jaded perhaps by, you know, certain certain scenario styles that are kind of replays of things I've already know. But equally, I also know that we've got a, a massive influx of people coming in uh, playing the game for the first time, uh, having picked up the seventh edition release, or coming in through the starter set release, or you know, just you know, they've been playing another game and now they want to try this other game they've heard about called Call of Cthulhu. So we've got a bunch of people who've never experienced what the haunting is like, so it's new to them. Mm. So it all comes back to me, you know, what what's fresh is what's fresh for your gaming group. Um, I think that's a really important distinction, it, and it's not the same. I might be running a game for a bunch of people that have never played before and I might be running The Haunting which is not fresh to me in any way and I know kind of inside out but every player around the table is completely fresh to them so as long as I you know so I've got to remember to try and be as you know, engaging and as interested in my portrayal of that scenario because it's about a shared experience around the table it's not just about my enjoyment from the game it's about all of our enjoyment from the game so I find ways to kind of keep it interesting for me and as a as a keeper, what keeps things interesting for me is how players react to things and what they do, because that's that's always fresh. Because you can never guarantee how a bunch of players is going to interact with the scenario yeah. and come up with some crazy ideas or or theories. And you go, oh, I've never thought about that, you know, with the haunting even. And going along with that, that that keeps it fresh. What about perhaps advice to listeners who they're keen on running Call of Cthulhu? But perhaps they're putting it to their players who've, you know, they just finished Masks or something a year ago and, and they're like, well, we'd rather play some other things, you know, because we've kind of done Call of Cthulhu. Is there any, I don't know, maybe I'm asking the impossible here, but is there any advice you could sort of offer to people like that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think one of the beauties of Call of Cthulhu is because it can take place when and where you like. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a default and there's a very popular setting. It's the kind of classic 1920s, 1930s setting for Call of Cthulhu. It's the one most well-known. It's the one that's most played. And people are mostly interested in that. However, you know, there are some quite uh, varied different kind of settings and styles for playing Call of Cthulhu, be it from setting in, you know, Victorian Gaslight or if you want a more kind of pulpy Wild Westfield, then Down Darker Trails. It's quite a different game in terms of, you know, what your characters have in terms of their knowledge, their capabilities, their access to equipment and, and information is very different in a in a Wild West scenario to what they might find in the middle of 1920s New York or mm. London. So that's quite a different playstyle to some degree, although you're you know you're playing the same game. Likewise, you know, Pulp Cthulhu throws the kind of style of game very wide open and that you know if you wanna, you know, you can play Call of Cthulhu as a very tight uh, and slow burn investigation game or you can go to the complete opposite and play it as a pace by pace kind of action encounter combat chases weird science all the stuff that's got no real place in a, in a slow burn investigative game and they're quite polar opposites but you can do both with the game of Call of Cthulhu so I think there's a lot of versatility and range within within the game to keep it fresh and to appeal to your you know your and your playgroups differing playing styles which change over time as you say you might have just spent the last two years running through masks which is quite it's quite pacey it's got you know some action in it but it's also got a lot of investigation so it's a kind of a middle of the road of a bit of both so but running into that and then running into you know some um you know one shot nights where you 
covering different styles of horror, whether it's survival horror or whatever it may be, or then picking up Tyranny Serpent and going for a much more kind of, you know, full-on pulp kind of situation. I think the versatility is there, and I think you can twist and turn the dials for of different scenarios and settings to appeal to your group, and I think that's one of the kind of real kind of... Um, boons of Call of Cthulhu is that it can be so it can be stretched quite far mm-hmm. and it's very malleable in that way you know it, it can it can be twisted in, in all sorts of manners even to, even to the extent if you have no mythos in it you just play it as a straight kind of you know classic kind of almost hammer horror if you want to do that well Call of Cthulhu accommodates that easily also earlier in the show we discussed introducing constraints on the game to change the way it plays so perhaps trying to do a game without combat or doing games with certain types of player characters. How do you feel about, you know, trying to change up the game in that way? I think there is potential to do that. If I think I can always come back to, you know, if that's what you and your group want to do, I think it can be problematic if it's just a GM or the keeper who decides they want to experiment and they don't let their players in on the knowledge about that because I think that can often um, lead to dissatisfying games from the player's point of view. They come in with a certain expectation of what this game might be uh, and suddenly to find that actually there's no combat in this or the way that combat works in this version is very, very different. Now, if the players aren't aware of that up front, then I think that has a potential to cause tension and disillusionment from the players because they're not the game that they were expecting. So I think if you do change things, I think that there's a need to have a consensus around the table that that's that's okay and we're all gonna we're all gonna buy into that mm-hmm. concept. That's number one. Um, in one sense, I feel it's very railroady. I think it's a real true sense of railroading. If the if the keeper is is kind of well, you know, the GM has decided that this is the style of game I want to run and I'm going to force my players to run this way. That is railroading. That's, you know, more railroady than the plot being railroaded as far as I'm concerned. Because I think the reason I enjoy role-playing games and the why I got into them in the first place is because they're unlike any other thing in the world in terms of games, the options are limitless and open-ended. And that I can technically do pretty much anything within the, you know, within the reality of the game setting you're playing I can do anything just like in real life. And that was the big selling point of role-playing games when they first came out, is that you can do anything. Um, you know, unlike a computer game where you, you have to follow the logic of the narrative, you have to follow the confines of the game you're playing and you can't break through those. In a role-playing game, you can. Uh, same for a board game. You can't break beyond the confines and the mechanics of the board. Whereas in a role-playing game, you can. So one of the reasons I enjoy them so much and I think many other people do is because you can you can play a character you can say well what do you want to do now we want to go and do this thing which may be something completely off tangent or whatever but will be kind of cool to do you want to do it you know and and, that, and often they're the bit they're the most memorable gaming sessions is when you go off script almost and, and do that however to put in artificial constraints that basically don't mirror reality let's take for example you know engaging in combat that doesn't mirror reality is that you, there are a million things that could happen in combat not just a fatal outcome seems to me to limit the game and to limit the player's capacity for enjoyment potentially not in every case but that doesn't appeal to me i like to ensure the players have you know the freedom to express their game as they will and, and as a player and as a gm to roll with that and to you know, to enjoy it as well. I don't know if that answers that, but... You know. No, I think it does. I think what you just said about the players have freedom to do anything they like and it leads them to doing things you didn't expect 
and that unexpected is about what keeps it fresh perhaps it's yes. one of the strong I, elements of unexpected well that's different that's fresh that's interesting yeah and i think that's one of the reasons going back to the original question is why i got into color Cthulhu and why i'm still playing it today is unlike the kind of games that i was playing when i started role playing which were like maybe set in a dungeon which to me is very much like a board game or a computer game. There are confines to the dungeon walls and the path you can take and what's in the dungeon. There's not a lot of ways you can go off the track on that. Um, so to come to play a game like Call of Cthulhu where suddenly you, you were given the entirety of New York City to play in, you could go anywhere, do anything within the confines of that. It was suddenly a much bigger world in terms of a mm. gaming setting than the dungeon that had 12 rooms and the dragon at the end of it. You know, and whilst I can see the appeal for the Dungeon of the Dragon that we're on, because we all, yeah, we all like to kind of hack and slash once in a while, have a bit of a, you know, let our hair down and roll some dice and get some treasure. It's not what appeals to me on an ongoing basis. Every, every, you know, every gaming session, I get bored very quickly if that's what's going to be the game, the same game pretty much every session. I like a different game and I like games to evolve and change. So that's what, yeah, as you say, keeps it fresh. So the only limits are your imagination. Well, indeed. Wasn't that a strap line to some game? I think it was D&D, wasn't it? I think it might have been. I think it was D&D yeah, back in the day. It sounds true. Yeah, yeah it's still still true. It, it, that, I mean, that that's the whole point of role-playing, isn't it? That we, you know, it's, a, it's a, an imagination-based game. All right, well, thanks very much, Mike. Well, thanks, Paul. And uh, don't forget to say hi to Scott and Matt for me. Will do. Thank you. Thank you. It is that time, once again, when we would like to thank people. We would like to thank lots of people. Well, let's start off by thanking each and every one of you who have given us money via Patreon. The money that you give us, well, it keeps us going. It pays for all our running costs. It pays for our time in creating the podcast. And and it makes us feel loved. And we would like to share this love. We would like to thank some new backers. Yeah, and our first shout-out today at the $1 level goes out to Adam. So thanks very much, Adam. Indeed, thanks, Adam. Thank you very much, Adam. Next up on our list, our thanks go out to Laird. So hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Thank you very much, Laird. Well, thank you, Laird. Thank you, Laird. We, we seem to have a lot of people with no last names here. It's just a new trend. It's it's just catching yeah. on. One well, name. Okay, well, yeah, I think we should consider this. We should, you know. Work for you? Madonna, work for Cher. Yeah. McLovin. <laughs> I, 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 I'm vaguely familiar with the... Is the... Um, I can't remember super, the name super, of the film. Super bad. Super bad, yeah. yeah. One not name? Seen it. <laughs> not seen it, though. All right. Yeah. It's very crude and stupid. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Plain to your Just my ball. sense of humour, sorry. <laughs> and thank you very much to Michael Karish. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you, Michael. And thank you to Matt W. Yeah, close to only having one name there. He has an initial. Mm. Also, good first name. Hey, thank you very much, Matt. Yes, thank you, Matt. And also, thanks go out to Jan van Steenkist. And I hope I pronounced your name right there, Jan. But thank you anyway. Yes, thank you very much, Jan. Thank you, Jan. And now we move on to the $3 level, where we not only say thank you, but we say cheers with a, a hearty toast. So, thank you and cheers to Matt Sanchez. Cheers, Matt. Hey, cheers, Matt. And thanks and cheers to Sarah M. Indeed, thank you very much and cheers, Sarah. Yes, thank you and cheers, Sarah. For the regular listeners, you will be aware that now we come to the $5 level backers and we're going to limit ourselves just to... Well, actually, this week we're going to say thanks to three of them, but two of them in song. Now, the first one 
is a big thanks going out to David Smith, who has upped his pledge from $5 to the mighty level of $20, wow. taking on <laughs> the title of Amazing Azathoth. Nice bit of alliteration there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that that is amazing. Thank you very much, David. (laughs) We are profoundly grateful. Thank you very much, David. And our next $5 backer, we haven't inflicted a song upon them yet. David had a song previously, but John Arco, our next poor victim at $5. Yeah, he, he needs a song. Well, thank you very much, John. And yes, we hope this brings you something akin to pleasure. Thank you, John. Thank you. John Arco. Thank you. John Arco. Thank you. John Arco. 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 John Arco! John Arco! John Arco! And we have another $20 backer. Sina Mayo, whose name I really hope we're pronouncing correctly, has taken on the title of Behold Great Cthulhu. So, behold! And, well, thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sina. Thank you, Cena. Uh, do I have to make that D10, D100 sound check now? Well, I think everyone is after we sing. Don't! Yeah. Thank you, Cena. On social media, we've had some recent mentions on a couple of other podcasts. There, there are other podcasts, Paul? Well, so I've heard tell. I don't, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think there are. Now, our good friend Lord Mordy asked the forces behind Pretending to be People, that's the name of another show, to give a shout-out to everyone on our Discord server, and the hosts added their own personal message. This is a Delta Green stroke Pulp Cthulhu actual play podcast with some great humour and production values. That sounds like my line, actually. That's, yeah, yeah, that does sound pretty cool. Yes, they, they, they are pretty cool. Thank you very much to the fantastic people who are pretending to be people in the Pretending to be People podcast. And thank you very much to Lord Mordy. Do they mash up Pulp Cthulhu and Delta Green? Do they play uh, yes. Delta Green with Pulp they, Cthulhu? Pretty much. Do they? Yeah. Well, you've, what? Got the, you've got the foundations of Delta Green remember, back in the 30s with the Radon Innsmouth, so it's it's the early Delta Green period. But yeah, it's but still the part tone of the, of the two games to me is really different. But, you've you not know, played I, it when I've run it. Hey? <laughs> you've not played it when I've run it. Oh, I had it run like that. <laughs> yeah, it just seems like an unexpected combo to me, but uh, fair play. That's good. We've also had another great review in the first episode of the new horror gaming podcast, The Podcaster in Darkness. Yeah, this is a brand new podcast. He's only put out two episodes so far. But, you know, this is someone who is telling us about the things he loves in horror gaming and started off by talking about his favourite horror podcasts. Does that mean he has an even lower wattage bulb than I have in this room? (laughs) 
<laughs> if he's in darkness or she's yeah. in darkness. But the podcaster in darkness is a pretty cool title. It is. So yeah. we'll link to both of these podcasts from our show notes. And then we had some feedback on the second episode of our Dunwich Horror Cycle. Uh, Daniel Carroll on our Discord server said, Just listening to the latest episode, and I don't know if Paul was aware or not, but Wilbur Waitley is actually statted in the Malleus Monstorum. Though it doesn't list it for some reason, he has 24 hit points. And though it's a moot point, the Malleus also states that a dog does 1d6 damage. Even a wolf only does 1d8. That's a lucky dog then, really, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I reckon the only way that fight went down like it did in the book was if you were playing Wilbur, Matt. Yeah. Wilbur's got your rolls. Yeah, and fail every com roll. I think also he's in um, the, at least going back from 6th edition previously, there was a section in there where he used to have all canon NPCs, and I'm pretty sure Wilbur was in there as well. Yeah, I think so. A little uh, illustration of him as well, hmm. I seem to recall. Yeah. And Tor Nielsen on Discord says... The mention of various editions of the Necronomicon made me think of something. In Aarhus, in Denmark, there is a memorial plaque and a road named after Olaus Wormius, using his non-Latinized name, Ol Worm. But still, the Necronomicon isn't even mentioned. And yeah, this really surprised me because, yeah, this is obviously a big hole in my education. I did not realise Olaus Wormius was a real person. No, I didn't either. Yeah, I thought it was made up. With a name like that, well, with the Latinized version in particular, well, actually, no, even Old Verm. It does sound like the kind of playful name that Leo Lovecraft and his circle made up. Mm, the Old Worm. Mm. Yeah, but uh, yeah, he was a Danish physician, natural historian and antiquary. Apparently lived in the late 16th, early 17th century. I guess I shouldn't be surprised because Lovecraft in his History of the Necronomicon also talked about translations by John Dee. So he, he was obviously you know, very keen to work historical personages in, but yeah, I'm, I'm just ignorant. Also from Lord Mordy over on Discord. Thank you so much for the shout out. I really appreciate you even going so far as to add a song to the end of the podcast. Every bit of exposure helps. Too bad the song I wrote for the Dunwich Horror wasn't ready in time. By the way, you guys really upped your game in the $5 backer songs. Those were hilarious. Yeah, along those lines, we had a few people ask us specifically about the context of our Wurzels tribute. <laughs> Do you want to explain to our more modern, urbanised listeners just what a glorious thing the Wurzels were? Well, yeah, it was back in the 70s. I was at primary school, so it's kind of mid-70s. And they had a string of kind of novelty hits in the in the charts, charting at number one, I think, mm. with a number of tracks, and they were a jokey, rural, cider-drinking, what would it be, Devonshire, Dorsetshire? Uh, I, I, I think the band actually came from Somerset originally. Right, Somerset, of course, yeah. that's the that would be the county. So it was all about agriculture and farming and cider-making and so on, and they had very broad Somerset accents, yeah, and, uh, Paul, Paul can, can I just pick you up on one thing? Yes. You're talking about them in the past tense. They're still fucking touring. Are they? Yeah, they're still going. Right. <laughs> they, they were formed in 1966. They're almost as old as I am, and they're on the road. They formed in 66? Yeah. Wow. We could link yeah. to a YouTube video or two, I'm sure, from the uh, show yeah. notes. Well, actually, I think I did in the show notes for this episode. Right. Yeah, I, I will happily share the pain further than that. And it was back in yeah. the time when you just had these miscellaneous jokey tracks i mean my daughter is constantly amazed when we look back at the music of the 70s it much less homogenized 
perhaps mm. than it is now. This is in her words. You know, back then it was it, you had all sorts of stuff sort of turn up in the charts. Yeah, I mean, we've touched upon the Wombles before in an earlier mm. episode. Yay! There was another novelty band tied in with a children's TV series. They weren't just one-hit wonders. They had a whole bunch of hits. Yeah. Overground, underground, wobbling free. The Wombles of Wimbledon. Come That's on. our next $5 back song, man, right there. <laughs> I will indeed take 40 winks through that one. Uncle Bulgaria. Oh, that was more Orinoco. That was more, he was more <laughs> my one. But yes, anyway, in case you th- you were thinking that we were making such horrors up, no. Now we're no. going to have to explain who the Wombles were. <laughs> we, we did that in a previous episode. Did we? Good. Yes. Okay. <laughs> And to wrap up, do we have any final thoughts about how to keep Cthulhu fresh? Do you two actually feel the need to shake things up, to change things up? Or, in your case, after 35 years, Paul, and after about 20 years for you, Matt, are you happy playing Cthulhu in the same way as you always have? Or do you feel the need to shake it up? I wouldn't necessarily say shake it up, because that implies that something's got stale and has got dull. But more, I still feel there's still such a wide mythos to explore out there. I haven't done it all yet, so I haven't got to the point where I need to find a way of going, oh, crap, I need to think of something I haven't done before. Ah! It's, there's still so much fresh territory I haven't trodden yet. In that case, I mean, what you're talking about is perhaps taking different toys out of the toy box, but not necessarily mm. playing with them in different ways. Yeah, quite happy to continue doing that. I haven't got to the point where I'm bored or feel that it's stale in any way yet. Hmm. How about you then, Paul? I think the main thing is that I feel interested in it. So we think about new games, new scenarios, then I just try and find something that sparks interest in me. Not wishing to sound too Marie Kondo, but something that sparks joy, that sparks horror. You know, if, if it sparks <laughs> horror, that's good. Sparks um, are great. They set fires. Oh, <laughs> oh you had to take it there. Always with the fires. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's the thing for me. I'm working on a new scenario right now and i kind of work through it and i work through it and then something will catch my interest in it and i think oh that's yeah i want to sort of make more of that bit i know that it's working for me when i feel excited about it and i hope that that will come out in the final scenario but then again i would probably take on running an old favorite campaign like realm of shadows or you know mars and the Last Tep or something like that perhaps for a group but it would be something that i know that i would enjoy Certainly there are aspects that are perhaps a bit stayed and a bit might feel repetitive, but I would just kind of avoid those. What about you, Scott? Yeah, in my case, there are certain tropes and images and ideas that I do find myself going back to over and over again. I try much more these days to catch myself when I do, not only because I don't want to repeat myself too much with stuff that I'm putting into print, but because if I do the same kinds of things over and over again, I get bored. Every now and then I'll get an idea about it, a new general way to look at Call of Cthulhu or the mythos. I find myself more drawn these days, for example, to presenting the mythos in neutral terms or sometimes even almost slightly benevolent but creepy ways and using very different settings and different kinds of characters just because it creates a very different feeling than the kind of thing that I'm used to writing and used to running. The more I do stuff like that and the more I change it and move in different directions, the happier I am and the more motivated I am to develop what I'm working on. But, you know, if I were writing another scenario like one that I'd written before, I'd probably get bored halfway through. 
And maybe an important consideration for us, talking about doing things for a long time and keeping it fresh. How do we keep the podcast fresh? Yeah. Crazy topics, crazy singing. Yeah, we can talk about it. We'll go downstairs now and we'll talk about that very topic, perhaps. So until next time, it's a good night from me. It's a cheerio from me and a farewell from me. And keep it fresh. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Have you ever thought of getting a part-time job as a car alarm? <laughs> oh. Tupperware. Still Tupperware. <laughs>